David Paulison was a Christian author, speaker, counselor, seminary professor. He died just a few years ago, and in a tribute written about him by Justin Taylor, I was struck by a number of the elements of his story. During his childhood, his family attended a liberal mainline church, so a church that didn't believe in the inspiration and authority of the Bible, didn't believe that personal conversion was necessary for salvation, the kind of church that believes that in the end, uh, everyone is saved, in spite of the Bible's teaching to the contrary. He believed that Jesus was a really good person who cared for those less fortunate than himself, and so he believed that we should be good people who care for those less fortunate than us. And that was pretty much the sum of his thinking about Jesus and about Christianity. During high school, he became preoccupied with questions like, what lasts? What matters? What is meaningful? Who am I? And in spite of his real interest in such questions, he dismissed Christianity as a worldview that had any real answers. And during that season, he himself was confronted with death and depravity, the murder of a classmate, suicidal friends, pornography, seeing others destroy themselves with drugs. He would write this about that time in his life. I was a passenger in a car that killed a man as he walked down a dark country road. I can still see his face. He turned toward our headlights in the last seconds, and I looked into his eyes as we hit him. And I sat at my grandfather's bedside after he had a serious stroke. He was rummaging through his achievements, relationships, aspirations, and travels. He was searching for something that retained meaning, something he could hold on to, something he could tell me mattered in life. But everything he mentioned seemed to crumble before his eyes as he spoke. In the end, all he could say was that life is more than money, and all he could do was break down and weep. And after saying goodbye, I sat on the steps outside the hospital and wept too. Confronted not just with the loss of his grandfather, but also with the utter meaninglessness of life. He lived out of despair, through college, into his 20s. Uh, now, a friend and a, a roommate he had at Harvard had become a Christian, and they were good friends, and they would dialogue the years after college, talking about Christianity. And intellectually, for Paulison, Christianity made sense. He understood the gospel, but he could not submit to it. He would say this, I had believed that despair, not joy, got last say. And as someone who wanted to run my own life, I had not believed the love of God in Jesus Christ, but relentlessly rejected him. And notice his rejection of Christianity wasn't at a head level. It was a heart level. He didn't want, he didn't want it to be true because he wanted to run his own life. He continues with his story. A friend, this, this friend challenged him, pointing out how he was destroying himself by running his own life. 
And he says, I knew he was right. The Holy Spirit used his words as an armor-piercing shell. I came under comprehensive and specific conviction of my sinfulness, uncleanness, unbelief, and unacceptability before Christ. It was a my whole life passing before my eyes moment. I felt the weight of many sins. And as the weight of his friend's words and the conviction of the Spirit rested on him for he didn't know how long. Was it a minute or was it ten minutes? He didn't know. But he would finally ask, how do I become a Christian? How do I become a Christian? And the question asked by the jailer in our passage this morning, nearly identical. What must I do to be saved? And the stories of these two men have a number of similarities, the despair that each walked through before they finally submitted to Christ. So speculating a little bit about this jailer in Philippi, uh, in the Roman Empire, a job like running a jail was typically given to a decorated Roman soldier returning from the front, something of a, a retirement plan. The, the Roman government during that time, uh, you may know, was brutal in many ways. Not, not big on things like mercy and compassion. It was harsh and, and punitive. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, the depiction of the soldiers in that movie is, is probably accurate. They were harsh and cynical and merciless. There were cities sacked and destroyed by the Romans. One account describes 20,000 men, women, and children crucified outside the city as a warning to anyone who would consider rebelling against Rome. And the soldiers were, of course, those who carried this out. Now, we don't know for sure that this was the background of this particular jailer. But it seems to fit. This, this jailer is unnecessarily harsh. His job is to put Paul and Silas in prison. The, the word prison there literally dungeon. In case you're picturing a more modern American jail cell, that's not what this was. They were given an inner cell. May have had, since it was inner, the inner cell, it may have had sewage running down towards it. An unpleasant place for sure. Well, this jailer has been instructed to keep them safe. Those are his instructions. Lock them up securely. But he has them put in stocks. They are forced into a position their bodies don't want to go. They are uncomfortable. And the jailer has done this not because he was ordered to, not because he has to, because he wants to. Goes to the kind of man he is, hard, sadistic, mean. So there's a backstory. There's always a backstory. We don't know what it is, but we wonder what he's seen, what he's participated in, that he would get to this point. It makes sense that he has at least seen some atrocities. He's experienced some awful things. The anger and the bitterness and the despair that goes with being a part of those experiences. So what hope is there for a guy like this anyway? Such a hard man. And such a contrast to the others in this chapter. Lydia, at the beginning of chapter 16. Now she's got it all together. Smart, successful, she's a businesswoman, she deals in luxury goods, she's interested in religion, she's trying to be a good person. And then the demon-possessed slave girl in her life is, is a mess. She's out of control in, in so many ways. She's about as low as, as one could go with no hope in sight. And now this hardened Roman 
brutal, cynical, despairing. And each of them so very lost. Each one of them far from God. Each one of them actually without hope. But God, but the gospel, but the good news that God saves sinners. And how good is it that God, how good must he be that he set this whole thing up? Remember Paul and Silas and Luke was with them and they're trying to get into Asia and the Spirit says, no, don't go there. And then they try to go to Bithynia, no, the Spirit says. And then Paul has a vision about Macedonia and they sense that that's where God's leading them. So they go to Macedonia, that's where they are now in Philippi of Macedonia. And these conversions are just so unique. Lydia's trying to learn about the God of the Bible. She's interested. And then there's Paul teaching her. It's actually like this. This is what it means. This is what it's all about. And she comes to know and love Jesus. And the slave girl, and she's a slave to these people and a slave to the demonic. And and the demonic banter coming out of her annoys Paul and he casts the demon out and she's free. She wasn't asking for it wasn't seeking it, it just happened to her. And, and that account wasn't random either. That's what Paul and Silas are there for. And, and they have at least, at least one more appointment that we're aware of, the meeting with this jailer. They go to a jail, not just visiting. And I, I'm sure Paul appreciated it when these meetings that God set up were pleasant conversations down by the river. But what's next was, was pretty much the opposite of that. They're not down by the river. They're in a jail cell, a dungeon. And it's not a pleasant conversation. It's physically uncomfortable. And it's an unwelcome interchange with a man who has positioned himself as their adversary. I just wonder about Paul and Silas while they're there. And at what point do they pick up on God is working on this man's heart? Was the possibility that the jailer himself could be a convert? Was that even on their radar? Are there people for us that we just kind of write them off because they seem so far from God? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, certainly they were exhausted. They would have loved to be sleeping at this point, but, but between their wounds and the position they were in because of the stock, sleep would have been elusive. So what do they do? They, they do the one thing they love to do. They pray and they sing. They worship God. They had joy in the midst of suffering. They had hope in the face of extreme uncertainty. And, and this is what I would call non-ignorable, non-ignorable. It's kind of a made-up word, but it's kind of a Calvary word. We love this word. And, and if you're wondering what it actually means, this is what it means. Those, who, those people who were these prisoners listening to him worship and pray and sing had never seen anything like this. Who does this? The, the ordinary response in a situation like this would be to curse God if you believe it's God's job to keep you out of situations like this, to keep you comfortable, to keep your stomach full, to make sure your rights aren't violated, to make sure you are respected and admired, then of course you would curse him 
holed up in a disgusting dungeon, beaten to a pulp, and falsely accused, but they don't curse. They praise and they pray. They worship. And what becomes evident to those around, verse 25 makes a point, Luke makes a point that the prisoners were listening to this. What becomes evident is that these guys have something they don't. Paul and Silas have a treasure they don't have. Everything has been taken from them. And still they have all they need for joy. They still have Christ. Though they've been beaten they can't be beaten. Because Philippians 1.21, Paul writes, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now Paul wrote that to the church at Philippi sometime after this. And it wasn't a slogan to Paul. This was his attitude. Go ahead, kill me. Okay, I'll go on to eternal pleasures at God's right hand in glory. Love it. Throw me in prison. Okay. I'll have fruitful ministry with the prisoners. I'll convert the warden. Do your worst. He just has joy in any and every circumstance because Christ is enough. Our vision as a church, it's over here on, the, on that thing, whatever we call that. <laughs> I don't even know. I set it up on the banner over there. Making Jesus non-ignorable in severance and to the ends of the earth. How are we going to do this? How are we going to make Jesus non-ignorable? Is this billboards? Do we need more billboards down off of 392? Do we need mailers? Sending, do we need to send a mailer to every house in the area? Do we need to craft some well-thought-out arguments to, to post on social media? Exciting programs of all kinds? I mean, those things are fine, and not to bag on them, but honestly, those things are mostly ignorable for an unbeliever. They're mostly ignorable. But a life, a life lived out in the midst of unbelievers with a value system seemingly upside down is hard to ignore. That's hard to ignore. A value system right side up is non-ignorable. So our hearts must be treasuring Christ first of all before any strategies for reaching our communities. That's a question for us. Does your value system challenge the world? Or does it merely mirror the world? Do you value and prioritize money and status and career success and sports and leisure in the same way everyone else does? Or is your life driven along by a different set of values and priorities that, that go back to treasuring Christ above all things because He is your greatest treasure? So, so this is going on in the dungeon, this worship service, this non-ignorable praying and praising by Paul and Silas. And then verse 26 and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Again, not a modern jail cell with iron gates and locks. The, the earthquake was strong enough to shake the foundation, to free whatever was holding the door shut, and to make loose the hardware that was connecting chains to the wall or to the floor. 
Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The keeper of prisoners in the Roman Empire faced severe consequences for failing to secure his prisoners. He may have faced imprisonment himself, which he knew firsthand how deplorable that would be, or he would face death. If he was despairing before now, he is at the absolute end of himself. Suicide would be better for him than any of the other possible outcomes. But verse 28, But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Somehow Paul knows the jailer is about to kill himself. We, we don't know how he knows that. We also don't know why the other prisoners have not escaped, but Paul seems to have command of them. Maybe they're hanging on every word as Paul teaches them the scriptures. We don't know. We just know they have not escaped, and Paul calls out to the jailer to keep him from killing himself. Paul spares the man's life. The guy who mistreated him. The one who showed him no mercy. If there was any bitterness in Paul, any resentment, any unforgiveness, this would be the place for it to just very naturally play out. Good spot for the jailer to get what he's got coming. In the movie Unforgiven, an old western with gunfighters and outlaws and, and this kind of a movie, there was a young gunfighter who shot and killed a man for the first time and he's struggling under the weight of what he's done. And the, the Clint Eastwood character says something like, terrible thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, all he's ever going to have. And the kid, just running through all the justifications, says, well, I guess he had it coming. Well, I guess he had it coming. Clint Eastwood pauses, reflects for a long moment, and finally delivers this epic line. He says, we all have it coming, kid. We all have it coming. Theologically on point. Right here, nailed it. Like a blind squirrel finding a nut, I suppose. Hollywood got it right. From Romans 3, all have sinned. No one seeks for God. No one is good. From Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Now, they left those citations out of the movie. I know a guy, a big fan of Westerns, big fan of Clint Eastwood, bought that movie, watched it, and then threw it away. It was so terrible. And I said, what did you expect? It's right there in the title, Unforgiven. This jailer, he had it coming. He deserved a sword run through him. So did he. He did too. And he received mercy. He was forgiven. Not because of anything he had done to merit forgiveness, forgiven as a gift, free. Free to him anyway. Not free to Jesus who purchased Paul's forgiveness at the cost of his own life. Paul is forgiven and so his heart is transformed by the gospel. Because he knows mercy, he shows mercy. 
was it this near-death experience where he almost killed himself? That could be very disturbing as well. I have one more idea. I'll share that in a moment. Verse 30. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now that word saved generally just means to be delivered from harm or danger of some kind. But in the context here, it seems to mean much more than that. What, is, what does he need to be saved from? He, he's, not, he's no longer in danger from the earthquake. The earthquake has passed. He's not in danger from the authorities because no prisoner, prisoner has actually escaped. What does he need to be saved from? Paul would have known better what the man was asking. And Luke 2, as he records this account, the question that Paul answers is, what must I do to be saved from eternal damnation? Isn't that what he's asking? What must I do to be saved from the wrath of God? What must I do to be saved from judgment? I believe he has just have to have heard the gospel from Paul and Silas. That's what Paul and Silas were about everywhere they went. They shared the gospel. The, the demon-possessed slave girl was announcing that Paul and Silas were proclaiming the way of salvation. That's where the trouble started. That ends with Paul and Silas in the dungeon prison. They cast the demon out of her. People got mad because they made money off this demon-possessed girl. They stirred up a crowd against Paul and Silas, who then got beaten and thrown in prison. Surely the jailer knows why his prisoners are there. He has to know the story. And probably aware of the singing and praying and the worship service they had down in the cell. Certainly never had seen anything like that before. But we do know for sure that he had an encounter with mercy. These men who personally did him no wrong, he made himself an adversary. He mistreated them. He put them in stocks. He left their wounds untreated. He made their lives even more difficult. He showed them only contempt, no mercy. And in response, they turned around and spared his life. So maybe he could ignore the proclamation of the gospel from Paul and Silas. Maybe he could ignore the accounts of the exorcism, as spectacular as that would have been. Apparently he could ignore what was true at so many points. He could ignore the spectacle of worshiping and believers in the midst of their suffering. But this is what he could no longer ignore. The grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God shining through the lives of these believers to him directly, intersecting him so personally that it was non-ignorable. No more can he push it out of his mind. I believe this is part of the fear and trembling. He can't deny the existence of this God that Paul preaches, the God of the Bible. It's, it's as real now as the nose on his face. And he knows he's on the wrong side of it. It's a terrifying thought. It should be a terrifying thought. If you find the thought of being on the wrong side of God terrifying, then good, you have right thoughts about that. And then the jailer asks the world's greatest question. The world's greatest question, what must I do to be saved? 
what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas tell him, stop being so mean. Join a church. Put some money in the offering. Try to be a good person. No? Let's go with what the Bible says. Verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's, that's the straightforward message throughout the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you haven't memorized this verse, or you haven't done a verse yet for this month, memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Romans 4, verse 5, it says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those are just a few of similar passages. And the, and the scriptures, more broadly in other places, will help us to understand what that means, what saving faith really is, what it means to believe in Jesus in a saving way. Some of those passages speak, passages speak of the importance of obedience. How does obedience fit with faith? Hebrews 5.9, for example, says, In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And in each of those passages, at the point where we were maybe expecting it to say believe, the, the verse says obey. John 3.36. Whoever believes has eternal life, and you almost expect him to say who does not, he who does not believe shall not see life, but it says obey. The opposite of Believing is not unbelieving in this instance, but disobeying. How does that make sense? So the gospel comes with divine authority. To receive the gospel is to recognize God's authority over us. He rightfully rules over us. He has authority over us to command us to think and to act and to do as as he would have us. So if you reject his authority, you are disobedient. You don't have the gospel. You don't truly believe. You don't truly trust him. Obedience here is not the same as works. You don't obey to earn your salvation. Obedience is the response of true belief. Obedience is the response of true belief. For example, students... Do you really trust your parents if you don't obey them? Your parents say, I don't want you to watch that movie. That movie's no good for you. Don't watch it. 
but then you watch it anyway. Now, not that that, not you guys, I know, you guys would never, but you might trust your parents for some things. You, you trust them when it suits you, this being the case here with this movie situation, but obviously not fully because in this instance, you trust yourself more. You trust that you are a better judge of, what, of which movies are good for you more than you trust your parents. So disobedience follows a lack of trust. Do you trust God if your life is characterized by disobedience to Him when you only obey when it suits you? When God says, do this, but you don't do it because you think you know better. Not that a true believer never disobeys, but a true believer recognizes that the failure to obey is sin. And the life of a true Christian is a life of repenting of sin as we become aware of it. So true faith involves obedience. Additionally, repentance is involved in faith. How does repentance fit with faith? Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe. In Matthew 3.2 and Acts 2.38 and Acts 17.30 simply say, repent as the way to God. And here's the takeaway with repentance. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance can't exist apart from each other. Faith is always penitent and repentance must always be given in faith. So when you have a, a text of scripture that speaks only of faith, or only of repentance, the other is implied. Because repentance is, is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. It's to turn from one way of thinking and living and to go 180 degrees. To, to put your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is to put your faith in Him, and that involves turning from yourself, turning from trusting in yourself. To believe in Jesus means you no longer trust your ability to make yourself right with God. You no longer trust your ability and your authority to run your own life. You now trust your Lord and Savior for that. Trusting in Jesus means turning from trusting in yourself and turning to trusting in Him. Repentance and faith. John Piper describes it this way, more of a description than a definition. He says, repent means to turn from all the deceitful promises of sin. Faith means being satisfied with all that God promised to be for us in Jesus. Basically, it's to turn from trusting in created things to satisfy our souls and trusting in Jesus to be our everything. Now, this jailer, he's told to believe in Jesus. But he's already demonstrating a posture of repentance. He's reached the end of himself. He's no longer committed to doing what he wants to do. He's realized that every, everything that, that promises satisfaction in this life has been lying to him. He's ready to surrender his will and to commit to whatever these men who proclaim the way of salvation will tell him. Do you see that here? Do you see how he's turned from himself? He's done listening to himself and trying to do things his ways. You tell me. You tell me the way of salvation. A great picture of repentance. God, you tell me. Whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. I'm done trying to run this thing. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's for him. It was for his household. It's for us gathered here this morning. I expect there are many here who believe in Jesus and, and I would also expect there are some who do not. It's for you this morning. Verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. The jailer in his house were giving instruction through the word, through the scriptures. Critically important to know who Jesus is and, and what it means to believe. So they were given what they needed to have saving faith. Verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he, that he had believed in God. And you see the, the heart change already. There's repentance. There's obedience. The, these things weren't present before. The, the wounds he had left untreated before, he now cares for. He now feeds them. He rejoices that he believes. He submits to baptism. Three times now we've seen in Acts where someone comes to faith in Christ and almost immediately they are baptized. They understood how important it is. It doesn't save. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus, but then obedience follows true belief, and we see that here. And then verses 35 through 40, and on first glance I found these passages a bit odd, and maybe you'll see why in a moment. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrate sent, sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul gets aggressive and demanding with the authorities. He raises a stink, and he has a point with everything he brings up. It's all valid. But what I find odd here is why now? Why now? Why make a big deal now? Paul and Silas, they've already suffered all that they were going to suffer at the hands of these people. They are being released. It's over. If they were going to tout their rights as Roman citizens, why not back when the magistrates were having them beaten? Why not when they're thrown into the dungeon? Why wait until all that is passed and they can walk out before they bring this up? And here's what I think the point is. Paul and Silas will be leaving town. I mean, sooner or later, they'll be leaving behind a baby church. And they want this church to flourish. They want this church to be thought of accurately and truthfully. For the accusations against Paul and Silas to remain would misrepresent the church, would mischaracterize what Christians are all about. It would undermine this church just as it was getting started. So it was important that the local that the local authorities set the record straight. And I think the response of Paul and Silas is instructive for us. 
We live in a culture where the rights of Christians are increasingly in jeopardy. And by Christians, I mean Bible-believing Christians, as if there's another kind, those who live under the authority of God's Word as the final say on all matters, those who call themselves Christians but just go, kind of go along with the world and the culture are less likely to have rights infringed upon. But what do we do when our rights as Americans are being violated? And that's a big question. It goes beyond the scope of this message. But let me just point out one thing. Notice this from Paul. His first concern, his first concern was God's kingdom, the spread of the gospel, the glory of God, the flourishing of others. That's what he was concerned about. His own will, his own comfort, his own priorities were secondary. His own rights were not the most important thing. Again, this is a heart transformed by the gospel. Life isn't about him. His life is not his own. He was bought with a price. And just as Jesus had given up his rights to come and die for others, so Paul would lay down his life for the sake of others. And so we are called to this kind of life. I hope we're struck by that. By these souls so transformed that they would lay down their lives for the sake of others. And notice, it's not at the expense of their own joy. You notice that? They're not giving up joy. It's for the advancement of their own joy. So more than just being struck by it or thinking it's cool, I pray that you are brought to respond. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. But it saves only those who respond with faith. It saves only those who respond with faith. Nobody is saved by the death of Jesus who does not respond to the death of Jesus by placing their trust in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Lord Kenneth Clark, internationally known for his television series, Civilization. He lived and and seemingly died without believing in Jesus. But he admitted in his autobiography that while he was visiting a beautiful church building, he, he had what he believed to be an overwhelming religious experience. He says this, My whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had known before. But then he describes a gloom of grace, as he called it. A gloom of grace, which created a problem for him. If he allowed himself to be influenced by this experience, he knew he would have to change. His family might think he had lost his mind, and maybe that intense joy would prove to be an illusion. So he concluded his words, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. Just so tragic. What is the world going to do for you when you're gone? And sobering, too, to, to consider the end of your days, like David Paulison's grandfather left just trying to find some reason that you can consider your life meaningful and then realizing there is nothing. 
you were the captain of your own soul. Or so you thought. Now what? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. A response is required. Some need to place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And for those who do believe, a life of repentance is our response. A daily turning from the deceitful pleasures of sin, turning to the abundant life that's found in Christ and living in submission to Him, worshiping Him alone. Let's pray. Lord, I, I confess personally I have fallen far short of the way you would have me live, um, my level of repentance, my, the amount of joy I have in difficult circumstances just reminds me that I'm not seeing you as clearly as I should. So help us all with that, Lord. Help us to have eyes to see just how great a treasure you are and eyes to see the emptiness of the things of this world that we wouldn't be ensnared by them but that we'd be worshipers, that we'd be followers, that we'd be believers in you for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our joy. And ask for this in Jesus' name.